I mean, when I say to my grandson, Pete, who just turned eight last week, when I say to Pete what teachers, what parents have been saying to their kids and their students forever from the beginning of human history, when I say, Pete, look, please slow down and use your brain. I'm speaking as though Pete is somehow separate from his brain. Now, again, I'm not proving anything here. I'm just saying this is how we intuitively think of it. It's evidenced by the way that we talk. I'm speaking as though Pete and his brain, that there's some separation between them. I'm kind of assuming that there's a distinction that can be made, some kind of distinction between Peter and his brain. And In fact, I'm conceiving of Pete's brain as something that Pete can use if only Pete will slow down. You know, Pete, slow down and use your brain. Hello and welcome to a no-brainer of an episode of On the Journey, and you'll understand why here in just a moment. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. Visit us at chnetwork.org. Visit our online community full of people having conversations like this, uh, community.chnetwork.org. You can even go to chnetwork.org slash donate and uh, make it to where we can keep doing these. We'd love to see you. Ken, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? You know, Superman does good, Ken. You're doing well. I'm doing well. You're doing well. And you would do well to catch us up a little bit, I would think, on uh, the various topics we've been discussing over the past few weeks related to yeah. um, conversations with those who may doubt or deny the existence of God. We've covered a ton of ground, so where are we headed today? That's one thing I hate about doing series. I love doing series because I, I love... Uh, transmitting information in a more complicated and fulsome way than what, what you can just do in one talk. Um, but I hate series because then you feel like you have to summarize everything every single time. Let me attempt as quickly as I can. And I have to begin by reading the, the quotation that we began our entire series with from atheist philosopher of mind, John Searle. This is what he says. There is exactly one overriding question in contemporary philosophy how do we fit in? How, how in the world do we fit in? That's the overriding question, he says, in contemporary philosophy of mind. Quoting him again, how can we square this self-conception of ourselves as mindful, meaning-creating, free, rational agents with a universe that consists entirely of mindless, meaningless, unfree, non-rational, brute physical particles? Okay, the question that John Searle asks here is really the Precisely the question that you and I have used as the, uh, the launching pad for our entire series. How do we human beings fit into the atheist materialist view of the world? How exactly does a materialist, a thoroughgoing, consistent materialist, square the conception that we have of ourselves with what he tells us is true about the universe in which we live? Now, the method that you and I have been following which I refer to as the performing of an internal critique, our method has, has been to climb into the atheist materialist, the scientific materialist worldview, to look around, that is to examine it from the inside, um, to think about what follows from it. 
to listen to what atheist philosophers and scientists themselves say about this worldview. In other words, what we're doing is we're, 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 we're saying to ourselves, what if it really was true that nothing exists but material substances evolving as they do by strict physical and chemical laws? What would the implications of this be for this worldview? What would naturally, what would necessarily follow if it really were true that there is no God, um, that we have not been created in God's image, that there's no such thing as a spirit or a soul or anything like that, just brute physical particles, to quote um, John Searle. What would be true? And already you and I have looked at a number of issues. We've looked at the issue of human worth and dignity. We've looked at equal value of every person. We've looked at the issue of morality. We've looked at the issue of human rights, of meaning and purpose in this universe. We've looked at the issue of human consciousness. And then last week, we looked at the issue of um, free will. And what we've seen so far, to just to summarize it, is this, is that a strictly atheist materialist worldview cannot square, on any one of these issues, cannot square the conception that we have of ourselves it cannot. The only way that a thoroughgoing materialist can make us fit into this worldview is to eliminate everything about us that cannot be reduced to brute physical particles, to declare everything an illusion that cannot be reduced to brute physical particles. Um, or to say it another, another way, Matt, if God exists and if you and I are created in God's image, then we do possess uniquely high and equal value, then moral absolutes do exist, then human beings do possess the unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then there really is transcendent meaning and purpose to human life, then human consciousness, the sense that you and I have of ourselves as being someone, really is true, and the sense that we have that we're free to choose really is true as well. Free will is real. We really are someone in that case, rather than just being biological machines of one sort. If there is no God, all of this is illusion. And we've quoted atheists, philosophers, and scientists every step of the way as admitting this and, in fact, insisting on it. All of this is an illusion. And since these beliefs constitute such a fundamental, the fundamental aspects of our existence and our experience as human beings, I believe that by simply leading a friend to see how his or her atheism reduces to these sorts of beliefs, um, being, being illusion, um, that this can be a powerful evangelistic tool. Okay, that brings us up to where we are now. And today, our discussion, and in fact, our discussion for two weeks now, is going to focus on what materialism, if it were true, would mean for the possibility of knowledge okay this is even the knowledge even the knowledge of whether we could know whether it was true or not yeah the right? knowledge of whether we could know that we know that it's true okay so in a sense we're asking i won't say the deepest question because free will and consciousness are really deep and on the same level but we're asking a kind of a make or break question that is can the scientific materialist account for knowledge at all and the argument that I want to make this week and next week is that a materialist worldview or a, a materialist universe, if true, would destroy the very possibility of knowledge, such that if materialism were true, we could not know that materialism was true. We could know nothing at all. 
Okay, so the question obviously is, how so? How are you going to demonstrate that? And that's really the guts of what we're going to look at today as we walk through four initial steps. So are you ready? I am ready. Let's go. You, um, you, you, what do I need to know about You can count knowledge? to four. What'd you say? All right. I said, what do I need to know about knowledge? <laughs> what do I need to know? Okay. And afterwards, will I have known it? I mean, this is my question. Like, just because you tell me it doesn't mean that I can know. Can I know it all? Can you know it as being Am true? Am I a know-it-all? Can you know, know it as being true? Okay. And Okay. So four steps that build upon one another so that we're, we're sticking very closely to what the materialist scientist philosopher has already admitted and already insisted to be true. Okay. Step one is this. If our universe consists entirely of brute physical particles, as John Searle says, then you and I also consist entirely of brute physical particles. We are matter from top to bottom, okay? And that should be uncontroversial, that is, from an atheist point of view. This is something that every atheistic materialist will agree with, okay, this first proposition. Let me quote from one that we haven't quoted from yet, that is atheist Paul Churchland, atheist philosopher, in his book, Matter and, and Consciousness. This is what he says. The important point about the standard evolutionary story is that the human species and all of its features are the wholly physical outcome of a purely physical process. If this is the correct account of our origin, and of course he believes that it is, then there seems neither need nor room to fit any non-physical substances or properties into our theoretical accounts of ourselves. We are creatures of matter. Okay? I have so many questions. I have so many questions, Ken. You have questions? Well, I'll hold, I'll hold them to the end. I mean, Actually, I'll hold them to the, somewhere in the middle and surprise you with them later. All right. Surprise me later then. Okay, because I just want this step to be clear is, is what I want. This, this is what he's saying, okay? All of our features as human beings are the holy, and that, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, the completely, the entirely physical outcome of a purely physical process. And if this is the case, he says, then there's no room to fit any non-physical properties or substances into, in, into our accounts of ourselves. We are, from top to bottom, material creatures, from the tippy top, you know, the tippy top of your head to the tippy toes of your toes, or whatever you say, material. That's not what I say at all. Just so you know. I know that's what someone maybe has said, or maybe not. Okay, that that's step number one. Now, step number two that follows from it is this: if what Paul Churchland says here is true, if all of our features are the wholly physical outcome of a purely physical process, then our minds must be included in that. Our minds must be material as well. In fact, the process of reasoning must be a purely physical process. As, as, as you listen to me speaking right now, you're thinking something. And, and I don't think you're just thinking random. You're not just like, oh, there's a wooden boat. Oh, here's Pinocchio. Here's this or that. There's some kind of a process of thinking going on in your head. Well, guess what? That Even that process of thinking must be a wholly physical process. Synapses firing, electrochemical processes, neurons, molecules, things like that, okay? Now, this is where it starts to get weird, and th this is where it should get weird even to an atheist because here is where our intuitive, basic conception of ourselves begin to, begins to really conflict with this worldview. Because 
our minds do not seem to us to be material things. <laughs> I mean, our minds, if anything, seem to us to be the absolute opposite, the exact opposite of a material thing. And heck, the process of reasoning again, that is those thoughts that connect with one another and lead us from A to B to C, they don't seem to be material at all. In fact, that process seems to be a process that is the exact opposite of a material kind of process. And this is evidenced, I mean, our intuitive conception of this is evidenced by the way that we speak all the time. I mean, when I say to my grandson, Pete, who just turned eight last week, when I say to Pete what teachers and what parents have been saying to their kids and their students forever from the beginning of human history, when I say, Pete, look, please slow down and use your brain. I'm speaking as though Pete is somehow separate from his brain. Now, again, I'm not proving anything here. I'm just saying this is how we intuitively think of it. It's evidenced by the way that we talk. I'm speaking as though Pete and his brain, that there's some separation between them. I'm kind of assuming that there's a distinction that can be made, some kind of distinction between Peter and his brain. And In fact, I'm conceiving of Pete's brain as something that Pete can use if only Pete will slow down. You know, Pete, slow down and use your brain. And, you know, while we understand that our brains are material and we understand that our minds are intimately connected to our brains in some way and even dependent upon our brains, there is a very, very close connection. Our minds, our thoughts, our processes of reasoning do not seem to be material. They don't seem to be material. Reasoning doesn't seem to be a physical process. You and I conceive of our minds as immaterial, and it's because of the sorts of things that our minds can do, which I already kind of alluded to. I mean, I know your mind, Matt. You have a sharp no, you, mind. Because I don't, I don't know my own mind, so this is impressive. Yeah, I'll tell you about your mind then. But I mean, Please your do. mind can bounce all over the universe. You can think about one thing. You can immediately think about something else. You can jump around. You can tie thoughts together. You can reason inductively from the particular to the general. You can reason deductively from the general to the particular. You can remember things. You can intend. You can wonder about things. You can tell lies. Uh, you can tell truths. You can exaggerate. You can decide. You can uh, think of things that are humorous and you can speak them. All of these things I've seen, except the lies. I don't think I've seen lies from you, but. Well, I, you wouldn't know them if you did. I would venture to say you have lied in your days. But the point is, can't say all of I these have. things, all of these things occur in uh, Matt Swaim's mind, and none of them seem to be material. And yet, if nothing exists but material, brute physical particles again, then everything must be reducible to these brute physical particles. Your thoughts must be things, material things in some sense. Reasoning must be a physical process. Like last week, you know, I mentioned steam coming off a pond and you immediately, you know, like knocked me down to size by saying that your thoughts are more like incense <laughs> rising to God. <laughs> you know, my Ken Hensley's thoughts, it may be swamp gas, you know, just like seeping out with this stench, but not your thoughts, right? But, but they have to be physical. One way or another, your thoughts, my thoughts have to be reducible to physical processes. And, and again, this is something that atheists will admit, I mean, understanding this I mean, and understanding what follows from a consistent, thoroughgoing philosophical materialism. One atheist philosopher 
said it like this. He has said that the brain produces thoughts and ideas in much the same way that the stomach and the bowels produce digestion or the liver filters bile. Now, again, that's probably referring to my thoughts, right? The bile? Possibly. Possibly. Your thoughts are more uh, like Yeah, but, you know, with that, though, I mean, this is not to say that chemistry doesn't affect the way that you process information. I mean, uh, obviously, we know a lot about brain chemistry and mental health. We know, you know, that aspect of thing. We know that if you had a uh, big lunch, then perhaps it's harder for you to think afterwards. Nobody wants to teach a class at college like at the one o'clock hour after the kids are coming in from lunch, right? Brains are not the sharpest, you know, and there, there, there are other aspects of this, but I can't help but think, you know, of course, since we're approaching the season of Christmas, currently in the Advent season as this is airing, of none other than Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, I know you're going to talk about Charles Darwin here, but I'm going to talk about Charles Dickens. And Scrooge, when he wakes up in the middle of the night and sees his former business partner, Jacob Marley, one of his first things that he says is that, this isn't real, right? Um, you may be a blot of mustard, a bit of undigested beef, an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave to you, right? That, uh, you know, even the food in his body that he might have eaten that's given him some sort of a weird dream sequence. We know that there's a correlation and an effect, but you can't jump from that to the fact that... Totally reducible. Everything, yeah, it, that, that, that everything going on in Ebenezer Scrooge is reducible to mustard and gravy. No, no, I'm glad you brought that out. I mean, I stated it, but I'm glad you bring it out. Okay, we know that our minds are intimately connected to our brains. We know that. I mean, if I drop a brick on your brain, you know, a big enough brick, you'll stop thinking, at least in this life. <laughs> you, you know, I believe you'll go on thinking, but you'll stop thinking in your mortal coil in this life, you know. And we know there's an intimate connection, but what I'm, what I'm insisting that we think about together is Think about what it would mean if our thoughts and our reasoning process is entirely reducible to physical processes, material processes, and whatnot. Again, if our thoughts are like the bile that the liver you know, filters, or you mentioned Charles Darwin. Yeah, Charles Darwin described thoughts once as excretions of brain. I love that phrase because it's just so... Um, it's so uh, horrible really <laughs> but you know if what i'm thinking right now is an excretion of my brain in other words again something physically produced something arising by uh, by chemical processes from a chemical reality from a material thing the brain swamp gas again okay now it, it sounds insane when we think of that that the brain produces thoughts like the stomach produces digestion or the liver filters bile it sounds insane. Um, by the way, all of which have physical byproducts. Yes. Um, yeah. There's no. There's not really any, like physical. Like you don't have to take out the trash after you finish thinking, right? There's not like a, a like a tube in your ear that well, like leaks well, I have all to the take out the trash after, done after. I have to take out the trash after I finish listening. Do you think? Well, I mean, sometimes this is a form of taking out the trash. There's a there's a cathartic element a, to this. A process but of purification. It's has not to like take place. it's not like there's a valve, right? That you drain all the excretions no. of thought once the brain gets full, right? There's no physical excretion. No. Oh, yeah. Okay. And the thing is, uh, you know, thinking in this way, we respond. This is insane, and that's because it's so anti-intuitive. It's so completely not how we normally think about our minds or about thoughts or about the process 
of reasoning. And yet it's inescapable on the basis of a consistent materialism. Because once you've said nothing exists but matter and material reality, what else could thoughts be? I mean, what else could a thought be but something materially produced, something physically produced? It's got to be an excretion of brain in some sense, okay? Which leads us to step three. Okay, so step one was simply everything is material. That means we're material. Step two is then, I guess that means that even our thoughts are reducible to material functions, our thinking, our process of reason. Step three is this, and it follows true. If materialism is true, and if our minds, our thoughts, our ideas are reducible to physical processes within the brain, then our thoughts and ideas must be determined by those physical processes, which simply takes us back to the discussion that we had last session on free will. For the materialist, the physical universe is conceived as a closed system of physical causes, physical effects, and we are conceived as being products of that universe. And this is why, again, I'll, I'll refer to two atheists, let them speak for themselves. This is why Sam Harris is willing to say that every single thing that you think and do is determined by prior states of this physical universe and the laws of nature. So that he's willing to say that free will, Matt, is an illusion. You are nothing more than a marionette dancing on your strings. Everything you think is physically determined. John Searle is willing to say it. He says it in different words. He says that since everything in the universe consists entirely of particles and their relations, and since everything in this universe can be explained in terms of particles and their relations, there's no room for free will. Everything you think, everything you say, can be explained in terms of particles and their relations. In, in other words, according to the consistent materialist way of seeing the world, the electrochemical processes that produce your thoughts are, are, are processes governed solely by the laws of chemistry and the laws of physics. And with this in mind, I mean, here's a great little quotation uh, from George Wald, an atheist chemist professor of, um, I mean, atheist chemist professor of chemistry at Harvard University. This is what he said once. 400 years ago, there was a collection of molecules named Shakespeare, which, not who, which produced Hamlet. Okay? 400 years ago, Matt, a collection of molecules, a biochemical machine named Shakespeare, <laughs> which produced Hamlet. So, uh, you know, Sam Harris, it fits with him, fits with what John Searle has said, fits with what George Wald has said, and finally, it, it, it fits with what we read from Francis Crick a couple of weeks ago in his book, The Astonishing Hypothesis, where he says, you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Okay. Now, can I ask the questions that were being raised at the beginning of this? Go ahead. I mean, I don't know what the questions are, so hit me. I mean, my question is, and this is you're going to cover this in point four, but I want to just voice it. And that is, if this is the case, then how would we know it? You know what I'm saying? Like, if knowledge is nothing more than 
chemical excretions from the brain, if it's all predetermined, how would we know it? Like, we wouldn't know it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, what? You are asking exactly the question that point four is about, so I guess we may as well dig in. You're, you're asking the question, yeah. You're, a, you're asking the question. Step one, everything is material. Step two, that means everything about us is material, including our thoughts. Step three, everything in a material universe is determined by physical processes. Therefore, our thoughts must be determined by physical processes, chemical processes. And that leads to step four, which is exactly the question you're raising. If all of this is true, Matt, if everything that you and I think is produced and determined by physical processes taking place in our brains, our respective brains, why should we trust our thoughts as being true? We'll put it that way, okay? And this is going to take some thought, no pun intended, okay? Because this is where it gets subtle, you know, and about, and we need to think carefully. But why would we trust our thoughts as being true? Let me start on a simple level. I mean, we don't we don't use the word true to describe the excretions of, of of a liver or a spleen. You know, we just don't normally use the word true. If we're talking about an excretion, it just is what it is, right? We don't we don't use the word true. In fact, we don't think of the results of a deterministic mechanical process as being true. So apparently when we use the word true and when we use the word knowledge, we're kind of moving away even rhetorically from the way we would normally think about mechanistic material processes. Excretions are not true. Um, you know, pistons going up and down in a, in a uh, combustion engine are not true. They're not knowledge. But if our thinking is produced, if our thinking is determined by physical processes in the brain, the firing of neurons, central nervous system activity, synapses firing and whatnot. That's the question I'm asking. Why should we think of the conclusions that are drawn as being true? Why should we think yeah, of these excretions as constituting knowledge? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and this is this is partly a joke, but it's also partly true, you know, uh, that when a field of cattle eats something and it comes back out, it can't be true, but it can be bullcrap. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> but it can cause it, you would never talk it, about it. Can cause global warming as well. I I understand. Right. It, it can be. It can be. And it can be swamp gas. Uh, but again, you don't talk about these things. It is true that the chemical process pr produced yeah. that, but the process itself is not producing truth. Yeah, it's not producing knowledge. Yeah, it's not presenting truth. Okay. It's producing information in terms of like yeah. what has been digested. But again, we're talking about facts. We're not talking about knowledge. Yeah, right, we're, talking we're talking about, about I mean, yeah. this, what you could, facts can exist, but knowledge of them requires some other kind of thing. Some other kind of thing. The universe thing. May, so, be, may be full of facts, but the ability to know them as yeah. facts requires something else. Okay, so let's creep and cre creepy crawler our way along toward a conclusion. Then, because again, this is subtle. This is hard to think about. This is hard to get clear in, in our heads, but... But why would we refer to an excretion of a liver or a spleen as being true is the question we're asking. Now, Christian philosophers have raised this question, and they make this point, and a number of them have. Um, here's J.P. Moreland. Um, he, he asked kind of a, a humorous question. He asked at one point, he goes, 
He, he says, Matt, would you trust the printout of your computer if you knew that rather than the computer having been programmed by an intelligent mind, that it had been programmed by physical forces or random events, you know, hail flying down out of the sky or chemical reactions or bile or, you know, any physical process. If a purely physical process had programmed your computer, would you trust as true the printout that came um, from, from your printer? And if mind emerged from matter, he says, without the direction of a superior intelligence, why would we trust the deliverances of the mind as being rational and true, especially in the mind's more theoretical activities? Okay, uh, by the way, I like what he says, that last line about the mind's more theoretical activities, because someone might kind of just think, you know, well, well, well maybe if the maybe if the deliverances of the mind are really simple, like, like, like I see a tiger coming, I'm going to run away, you know, that maybe that would be explainable or maybe that would be okay. But especially in the mind's more theoretical activities, like, like I'm listening to a symphony written by, composed by Claude Debussy, and I'm going to try and explain how and why he changes keys like 17 times, you know, he begins in the key of F sharp minor, then he goes to the key of C flat, you know, major, and then he transposes. Okay, in the more theoretical uh, activities of the mind, it doesn't make sense at all to think that if it is simply produced physically, that it would be giving me knowledge. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say that, uh, let's say, we'll use the example of the Super Mario Brothers there games. Um, those are developed by a higher intelligence, by humans. And you can go in them, and they are programmed to do certain things, but you can also, they're not programmed to think. Right, The games are programmed to respond to and react to things based on if-then statements within the game. And on, I don't know so much about Super Mario 2 because I don't play it that as much, but in Mario 1 and Mario 3, you can find entire like hour-long tutorials on how to exploit the glitches in these games in order to beat it. There's a speedrunner who has beat Super Mario 3 in like three minutes, hmm. not because he's that fast at beating the enemies on the level, but because he's figured out a couple of glitches in the system to where if you exploit them, you can short-circuit the brain of the game, and the game thinks that you're doing something that you're not actually doing. If the game were able to think, you try that a couple times, and the game would say, no, 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 you tried this a couple times before, you're not going to pull this on me again. But the game can't think, because the game is a series of if-then statements, and, you know... But the Mario Brothers, they can think, right? Well, no, they can't either. The only person that can think in this game, well, the only two people that can think are the designers of the game but aren't they brothers? and the person holding the controller. But I thought they were think. brothers. Well, they are brothers. Mario and Luigi. <laughs> but they are created by a higher intelligence. Yeah, well, well, and your point is good. I mean, video games don't think. Mario and Luigi are based on people who are made in the image of God, but they themselves are not, not the image real. of God. They're just digital Italian plumbers. <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought I I thought Mario and Luigi were real guys. I thought it was a documentary. I thought that what you that thought they Mario, were Polish? Super Mario Brothers was Mario a documentary. Luigi. Come on. <laughs> I thought it was a documentary about their lives. But okay, games don't think. In fact, you know, computers don't think. Com computers can only spit out what they have been programmed by a thinking mind to do. And so, if if Super Mario Brothers was 
programmed by electrochemical processes, physical processes, or if a computer was programmed, would you trust it? Would you trust the excretions coming out anyway. of it as being true? Well, okay, so I was I've making the point. T- I've seen Terminator 2. <laughs> I don't trust any of them. I've seen Battlestar Galactica. I don't trust the Cylons. I'm, I'm still, I'm not going to tell my kids this, that, that Mario and Luigi are not real, by the way. I'm just not going to do it. It'd be too painful. Oh, well, listen, you wait. Okay, J.P. Moreland has raised this issue, Christian philosopher. Alvin Planting is another famous Christian philosopher that we're going to get to next week. He's raised this argument in a similar way. But it's not just those who believe in God that are raising this question that we're asking here in step num- number four. That is, why, why should we trust the deliverances of the mind as being true? Atheist scientist, very famous scientist, J.B.S. Haldane, he asked the same essential question. Here's what he asked. If materialism is true, it seems to me that we cannot know that it is true. Why? Well, he says, if my opinions are the result of the chemical processes going on in my brain, then they are not determined by the laws of, I mean, then they are determined by the laws of chemistry, that is my opinions, not those of logic. And here here we're going to get into a, a real key issue. But again, he says, if my opinions are the result of chemical processes going on in my brain, then they are determined by the laws of chemistry, not those of logic. And therefore, he's saying, I, I can't know that they're true. I can't know my opinions are true. Okay, now, th- this is where the, the argumentation becomes subtle, and we're going to have to work on it a little bit. It's not really easy to follow. But let me begin with this statement, Matt. Okay, there are laws that govern sound reasoning. Everyone agrees with that. But guess what? These are not physical laws. <laughs> it's, it, they're not laws like the law of gravity or the laws of thermodynamics. The laws that govern sound reasoning are laws of thought. They are laws of logic. They're not physical now, laws. Someone might stop you there and say that logic is just math. But, well, math is logic, but logic transcends math. Logic includes a lot of other things other than just A plus B equals C. They're not physical laws, that's for sure. That's for sure. If you see Einstein standing up at his chalkboard and he's got an equation that's like 75 figures in length, it's not a physical law that's pushing the first figure to the second, to the third, to the fourth, and all that. But let's take a much simpler example. Let's take the classic syllogism. Premise A, all men are mortal. Premise B, Socrates is a man. Leading to conclusion C, Socrates is mortal. Okay? If, if premise A is true, all men are mortal. And if premise B is true, Socrates was a man then the conclusion C follows, Socrates was mortal. Socrates is mortal, okay? And now, let's think about this. Notice that there is a certain necessity to logic, where, whereby if the premises are true, the conclusion follows and follows necessarily. There's this necessity. But again, it's not a physical necessity, like one billiard ball hitting another billiard ball hitting a third billiard ball and driving it in a particular direction, it's a rational necessity, whatever that means. Okay, or to put it another way, Matt, there is an oughtness to logic to where if you buy into premise A, all men are mortal, and if you buy premise B, Socrates was a man, then you ought to buy into the conclusion that Socrates was mortal. If the, if the premises are true, the mind is driven 
to accept the conclusion. There's a compulsion. Your mind is compelled by the premises to move from A to B to C. But again, this is not a physical compulsion. It's not a chemical compulsion. It's a rational compulsion. The mind is moving from A to B to C because it's logical for it to move in that way, not because there's something physical moving it. And so this is where the problem comes up for materialism, because if materialism is true again, if this really is the universe in which we live, and if every thought that occurs in one's head is determined by material processes, then premise A, all men are mortal, must be something physically produced. Okay, all men are mortal is an excretion of brain. And then Socrates is a man, premise B, that would be another excretion of brain. And then the conclusion, Socrates is mortal, would be a third excretion of brain. And I guess the question I'm asking is this, if the laws of chemistry and physics are producing this discrete excretion, this discrete excretion, and the third excrete discretion, how do the first two know that they ought to result in the third when there's no physical necessity connecting them? Rather, there's a rational, logical necessity. Do you see well, you've already messed is? things up by using just the word no in relation to this conversation, right? Because the only way that we have to talk about this is by using the word no. To know. Um, <laughs> to know. I mean, it's, it's really hard for us to kind of even get our, well, well, our minds around that. Well, yeah, because if chemistry is running the show, um, if physics is running the show, then premise A is something that, fit, that, that chemistry and physics produced. It's an excretion. The second one is the same, and, and the conclusion is one and the same. And yet, A, B, and C are connected to each other logically. They're not in any sense connected physically. So it, it raises the question. And they're and, actually, so this is, the, this is another aspect of this. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a thought that exists even know that, it, it's a truth that exists even if nobody's thinking it. What is? Right? Oh, you, you mean the that, conclusion? The A, right, the A plus B equals C yeah. Is a it's a thing that exists out there even if nobody's running the process. It is yeah. knowledge. Right? Yeah. And As opposed to chemistry, which only happens when it actually takes place. But even the existence of chemistry, the understanding of how that happens is a piece of knowledge, even when it's not happening. <laughs> You're like You know what I'm saying? Like, like even when nothing's being excreted, that truism, that truth that set of principles interacting with one another is true. Is true, sort of even if nobody's that, actually doing it. It sort of reminds you of that that Zen cone. You know, if a tree falls in the forest, doesn't make a sound. Or, or an even better Zen cone is if a, if a husband speaks and his wife is not present, is he still wrong? Is he still wrong? You know, is he still wrong? Yeah. Well, okay. Well, but you see how counterintuitive this this becomes that it, it becomes hard to even talk about it um, because if chemistry is running the show in in your brain, if physics is running the show in your brain, then why are why is your brain operating in obedience to a non-material law of logic? And excreting A, excreting B, and then excreting a conclusion, a logical conclusion. And again, 
this is not just something that Ken Hensley, a theist and a Christian, is saying, and Matt Swaim is saying. This is something that atheist J.B.S. Haldane said, and so I'll, I'll read it again. He said, if materialism is true, it seems to me we cannot know that it's true. If my opinions are the result of the chemical processes going on in my brain, they are determined by the laws of chemistry, not those of logic. And therefore, this I can't a, know that they're true. It's just happening. Yeah, Lewis says something similar. It might even be in Mere Christianity when he says, if the universe had no meaning, we wouldn't even be able to like debate about whether or not it had any meaning. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's just, you wouldn't have the tools. A similar kind of statement. Okay, now look. One kind of re response that many atheists will give just immediately and off the top of their head is to say, well, these are all interesting conundrums that you're raising here today. These are interesting questions. They are fun to talk about. But come on, guys. The bottom line is our brains seem to work just fine. We do seem to come to true knowledge. And so obviously, whatever the process, it's working. You know, we can invent an iPhone, we can send a rocket ship up to Mars or whatever, you know, we can make medical devices, we can cure cancer. So great, fun thoughts, fun thoughts, fun conundrums you're raising. But the bottom line is, however it works, our brains seem to work. Okay, the reason that this response should be pushed off the table immediately, this is not, this is not a response that means anything. The reason is this. Yes, we appear to possess knowledge. Our minds appear to be able to arrive at knowledge. The evidence is, is everywhere. But maybe that's because materialism isn't true. <laughs> you know, maybe the reason our minds can arrive at knowledge is because our minds are more than matter. Maybe it's because our thoughts really are more than excretions of brain. Maybe the process of reasoning really is more than an electrochemical physical process. In other words, maybe the reason that we can come to knowledge is because God exists and we have been created in God's image and the mind is more than matter. So so that's not a good response because that could be answered in either direction. And we're going to go deeply into the responses that 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 atheists do try to make to this argument next week, but I but I want to kind of tie this together and make sure that it's clear. Um my point here today, the argument you and I are making today is that it does not make sense to talk about knowledge or to talk about truth within a strictly materialist worldview, where everything that goes on in my brain is determined by the, not by the laws of thought, but is determined by laws of physics and chemistry. In that case, I mean, I simply have to believe that God exists because that's the excretion that's going on in my brain. And an atheist has to believe that God doesn't exist because that's the kind of excretion that's going on in his brain. And that's about it. To kind of tie this so, together and what well, we go ahead. Yeah, I just I, I just have one thought sort of to add to this. Sure. Is that people who are doing science and physics and chemistry and you know, all of this other stuff, logic uh, now have kind of the the freedom to mess around with these ideas. But the people who developed physics and chemistry and science and astronomy and everything else uh, were coming from a theistic worldview because they started with the premise that 
the materialist worldview takes for granted. They started with the premise that an intelligence, a thought, an, a, 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 some kind of being with knowledge made this stuff. So some kind of being that was able to think logically put this all together so that it would function in an orderly fashion. And based on that premise, we know that if we study certain things, they will make sense to us. Right. So all of science is basically developed on the premise that a being with the capacity for knowledge put it together and therefore it should have an order to it. There's no way to there's no way to escape that historical reality. It's simply true that science arose within a worldview where people were thinking God created this universe. God thinks rationally. God created this universe to be rational. He created us in his image so that we also have rationality and we can think through and we can find the order in creation and all this kind of makes sense. Science did not arise within the context of a worldview that says everything is just an excretion, you know, or or the other end. We don't did, have free will. Yeah, we don't it didn't have arise. Minds. Yeah, it didn't arise in a world. Nobody has rights. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't arise in a world either where people just looked out and said it's all mystical, nothing makes sense. It didn't arise. It arose within specifically when a Judeo-Christian worldview. Yeah, so I'm saying well, I say all that to say that you can't even start making these arguments without beginning with the premise that the universe is ordered. Well, that's why <laughs> I mean, you can't even because again, it it and, and that order proceeds from the people who established who, who developed all the language that we're using to talk about this, believed in a God that had the capacity for knowledge and thought. Yeah, and this is So you're why, using all their terms to describe it. This is why, um, you know, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel, and the book that he wrote called Mind and Cosmos, Why the Neo-Darwinian Materialist View of the Universe is Almost Certainly False, you know, that great, a great title, you know, that even being an atheist... Even being someone who has admitted he doesn't want there to be a God, he doesn't want to believe in God, because he, he, he sees that mind, and his focus was on consciousness, but conscious mind, is so conspicuously non, non-material and separate from physical realities that he just says materialism can't be true. It cannot be true. Whatever the answer is, it cannot be true. And, uh, you know, and so he proposes this idea that maybe there's just material in the universe and then there is mind. You know, there are two things not necessarily rooted in God or in any creator, just out there floating. There's mind and there's material. And, and that's something I guess you can grab onto if you want to. But but see, this is a problem. How can I grab onto it? It's not a physical reality, Ken. That's true. That's true. And, and I want to kind of close down with one more uh quotation that I think is really powerful. And this is from the late John Polkinghorne. Okay, he was a well-known theoretical physicist, theologian, and eventually an Anglican priest. He was the professor of mathematical physics at Cambridge for a number of years before he left um, his professorship to study for the priesthood and became an Anglican priest. And here's how he summed it up. Maybe this is one, this is, I'm sure this is one of the reasons he wanted to become a priest. Here's how he sums it up, though. As professor of mathematical physics at Cambridge, Materialism destroys rationality. Thought is replaced by electrochemical neural events, events in, in the brain. And now I'm, I'm going to go carefully because this is so rich and succinct.
Thoughts are replaced by electrochemical events in the brain, neural events. Two such events cannot confront each other in rational discourse. They are neither right nor wrong. They simply happen. Okay, you know, what he's saying there is, like, like we said, premise A is an excretion of brain. Premise B is an excretion of brain. C, the conclusion, Socrates is mortal. It's an excretion. If, if these three are neural events, he says, they cannot confront each other in rational discourse. They're not connected rationally or logically. They're neither right nor wrong. He says they simply happen. And I'm continuing quoting, the very assertions of the materialist, everything he asserts himself, are nothing but blips in the neural network of his brain. The world of rational discourse dissolves into the absurd chatter of firing synapses. Okay? Ken's synapses fire, Matt's fire, all the synapses are just firing, and it all, he says, he says, rational discourse dissolves entirely into the chatter of firing synapses. And then his last line, so powerful, quite frankly, that cannot be right, and none of us believes that it is so. Yeah. Yeah, that is... And again, going back to this whole idea of brain chemistry being a very real thing. Like, obviously, there are chemicals and synapses that are firing in human brains. And obviously, if you eat certain things, you can improve, you know, the connections between those synapses. Um, If you eat other things, you can maybe decrease them. We know that, uh, you know, people who do study in the field of Alzheimer's research know that certain foods, if eaten over time, either combat Alzheimer's or maybe contribute to Alzheimer's. Um, There are things that you can eat that it can improve your mood. There are things that you can eat that can ruin your mood. Um, I mean, if you eat healthy foods, you're going to be in a better headspace perhaps than you are if you just eat, you know, bean burritos and drink Mountain Dew Code Red. Right. uh, Right? Or Code Blue, whichever the code is. Uh, You're going to code. At any rate, we know that there is a relation between the things that you break in, take into your body and the chemicals that go along in your brain. Well, but you cannot reduce humanity to merely the reactions that are happening there. It is clear that there's more going on than your brain That's why doing yeah. what it is or is not doing based on how much coffee That's you That's why have. Thomas Nagel says it cannot. It's almost certainly false. The materialist conception of the universe is almost certainly false. I, I love what Polkinghorne says here at the end because he says, quite frankly, that cannot be right. Just the chatter of firing synapses. And none of us believes it to be so, which kind of gets back to the framework of our entire discussion here. And that is that what we believe is that human beings are created in the image of God. And therefore, human beings know in their heart of hearts that 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 human beings possess high and equal value. We know in our heart of hearts that right and wrong are real things. We know that consciousness is real, that we are somebody, that we're not just nobody, like Matthew McConaughey said in True Detective. You know, we know that we have freedom, that we can choose, that we're not just machines where everything is literally mechanically produced, every thought, every action, every word. We kind of know these things. And what he's saying here is this. He's saying, we know that it's not the case. It simply is not the case that all of our thoughts and even the process of reasoning is nothing more than neural events. None of us believes that. None of us believes it. But in the end, materialism requires it. And so, see, here's the thing. The Christian theistic worldview is more complicated. 
So we can account for material, but we also account for things that are non-material, for abstract entities like the laws of logic, for things that go beyond matter. And this applies when we're talking about free will. It, it applies now, it's applying now when we talk about knowledge. But the materialist is forced to reduce, to perform, I mean, the, the materialist is forced into this reductionist program where everything must be absolutely reduced to a physical process or to swamp gas emanating or light emanating from a light bulb. It has to be an emanation of physical process. It cannot be, there cannot be anything more than that. And so my argument here is that materialism eliminates the validity of human thought. And by eliminating the validity of human thought, it eliminates the possibility of knowledge. I believe that if materialism were true, we could know nothing at all, including the fact that materialism was true, which in a way might be a backhanded proof for the existence of God. Uh, one of my teachers said it like this. He said, the proof for God's existence is that without God, you can't prove anything. The very conception of proof requires God's existence. Now, we could talk about that. We can unwind that. But the very conception of proof, well, you know, what he's saying by that is that for rationality to be real, for there to be laws of thought, for there to be such a thing as a proof, requires something more than matter. Yeah. The very conception of concepts requires no ability. The conception of concepts? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, now we're going to stay on this subject another week, Matt, because I do want to spend more time looking at how materialism deals with this challenge because, uh, you know, they don't just drop dead and say nothing. Um, th this is a powerful challenge. I mean, we're challenging the very existence of materialism as a rational worldview here. And, and so I want to deal in our next episode with how, um, how it's dealt with. Um, so we've argued here that materialism makes human consciousness an illusion several weeks ago. We've argued that materialism makes us into human robots, rock'em, sock'em, human robots. And now we've made the argument that materialism destroys the very possibility of knowledge, that if materialism was true, we could know nothing, including the idea that materialism was true. So how do materialists deal with this challenge? Beyond simply saying, well, whatever, everything seems to work, so we must be okay. No. That's what we're going to deal with next week. Well, even the ability to say that something seems one way or another implies Rational the capacity thought. for rationality and knowledge. And Yeah, can you say something in conclusion? Can you say something that's not just an excretion of your brain? Well, at this point, if you're in a purely materialist worldview, I guess I couldn't. Right. Because, because you have nothing else. Well, I guess I don't. But how would I know if I had nothing else or not? Because that requires you couldn't the capacity know to know one thing or another. Yeah. You... Maybe I'm Mario. Maybe I'm Mario stuck in the wall in World 5. I don't know. That makes me I Luigi. And with that, I, I will suppose say, so. And I will say, you are taller. I, I will say, ciao. Okay. Well, all right. Um, and I guess I can't think of another way to end that uh, other than to say we're glad that you spent a little time with us today. And uh, we hope that this conversation has stimulated something in you that one might call 
knowledge. I have no idea. Uh, but please do come and check us out. Uh, the Coming Home Network, chnetwork.org. Visit us in our online community, community.chnetwork.org. And you can donate to our cause, especially as we wind down towards the end of the year, chnetwork.org slash donate. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague, Ken Hensley. Thank you so much, Ken. Have a great day. I'll see you next week, sir. 